On this episode of A New York Minute in History, we explore the story behind the 1969 Woodstock Music Festival. We'll discuss how the rock concert came to be, where it took place, and why. And, of course, the legacy of those four days in August. Woodstock is one of the few places that has a, such a continuous history of art colonies. Woodstock never had a, quote, style. It was always known for a diversity of uh, artist styles. So they thought, well, let's, let's do a festival. They conceived of this idea of a thing called the Woodstock Music and Art Fair presents an Aquarian Exposition. If you want to work all day and boogie all night, be on that bus at 7 a.m. sharp, because at 7.01, we'll be trucking on down that highway. Peace and love really is the legacy. Join us as we explain how and why the iconic rock concert found a home in New York's Hudson Valley. Welcome to a New York Minute in History, a podcast about the history of New York and the unique tales of New Yorkers. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State historian. And I'm Lauren Roberts, the historian for Saratoga County. 2019 marks the 50th anniversary of likely the most celebrated rock music festival of all time, known simply as Woodstock. First things first, let's clarify one thing about Woodstock. It didn't actually take place in the town of Woodstock, New York. Woodstock is an hour and a half northeast of here, uh, and it's it's quite funny. Uh, even to this day, people will set up a meeting with us at the museum, and uh, we'll get a call about the time the meeting's supposed to happen. We're in Woodstock. Where are you? <laughs> and we have to tell them they've got an hour and a half drive ahead of them. Wade Lawrence is the museum director and senior curator at the museum at Bethel Woods. We're located on the property where Woodstock happened in 1969. So, Devin, if the concert didn't happen in Woodstock, why is it known by that name? Well, the organizers wanted to have it in Woodstock, but they couldn't find a suitable place. We have to remember Woodstock is a small town. Then they tried a spot about an hour south in Walkill, but their permit was revoked. Eventually, they ended up in a farmer's field in Bethel, but the original Woodstock name stuck. They made a deal with Max Yasker for uh, the lease of his property for a festival that would take place in a little over three and a half weeks. And they, they immediately started re-advertising. White Lake was the closest hamlet or village to uh, where the festival was. So they advertised that the festival would be in White Lake, New York. Uh, but all the time, it was always still called uh, Woodstock Music and Art Fair Presents an Aquarian Exposition. And uh, the media just shortened it, and the, the public just shortened it to Woodstock. The festival's lineup included some of the most notable rock acts of the time, including The Who, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Janis Joplin, and Jimi Hendrix, just to name a few. Hundreds of thousands of people, more than half a million by some estimates, crowded in for what ended up being four days of music, drugs, peace, and love all complicated by traffic delays, logistical flops, pouring rain, and mud. Celebrated as a peaceful representation of the counterculture movement and remembered by the name of its intended location, Woodstock stands out as one of the most influential social events of the 1960s. But 
let's go beyond the festival and explain why this area of New York attracted diverse ideas, people, and art well before August of 1969. It's interesting because Woodstock is one of the few places that has such a continuous history of art colonies. And it begins early in the the 20th century with the founding of the Birdcliff Arts Colony. And that was intentionally founded as one of these utopian communities where all kinds of artists and artisans could come together and work Karen Quinn is a senior historian and curator of art and culture at the New York State Museum. We spoke to her about an exhibition at the State Museum called The Historic Woodstock Art Colony. It comes from the collection of Arthur Anderson, who we will meet later in this episode. Quinn details how the Woodstock area developed into a haven for artists. Birdcliff was founded by four very headstrong and wonderful creative geniuses, Ralph Whitehead and and his wife Jane Bird McCall had the money and were artistic in their own right. And then Hervey White and Bolton Brown were two of the artists that they engaged to help found it. And, uh, of course, these geniuses clashed and Whitehead splintered off, founded another community, the Maverick, and then Bolton Brown splintered off and became very involved with developing American lithography. So, And these things just kept building on each other. Woodstock at the time was farming community. Um, the Whiteheads bought the land from farmers for Birdcliff, which you can still visit today. So it wasn't what it has, of course, become now. It was relatively inexpensive to live there. And this idea of community started to attract, attract other artists to the area. Its proximity to New York was certainly a big attraction, and also that it was accessible by transportation that was available at the time. It's beautiful. The landscape is gorgeous. As Quinn explains, the splinter group of the Birdcliff Arts Colony would go on to host a festival that foreshadowed the 1969 concert which was driven by the need to raise money to improve the colony's living conditions. Well, Hervey White founded the Maverick Colony, which was even more bohemian than Birdcliff. Initially, it was largely for um, literary figures would would work there and uh, musicians would work there, and then ultimately uh, visual artists came as well. But the conditions were extremely, extremely rustic, if you will, so much so that in the late teens, Hervey White wanted to build, to dig a well on his land and hosted what became the first Maverick Festival, which happens the full moon in August. And it was a nightly spectacle where uh, the partygoers dressed up in costume They played instruments, they did acting, they did all kinds of performances. Food and drink, of course, were involved. And it became enormously popular, so much so that later, a couple decades later, they had to stop doing that. But it is often viewed as the predecessor to the 1969 Woodstock Festival. And in the early 1900s, the Art Students League also set its sights on New York's Hudson Valley. Their summer school at Woodstock moved from Connecticut to Woodstock in 1906, and that's really important because um, the Art Students League became 
one of the most and still remains one of the most important art schools in this country. And it splintered off. It was founded literally by art students in the 1870s, sort of in response or in revolt to the National Academy of Design, which had been in existence since 1826. And the summer school established itself in Woodstock in 1906. And teachers of all kinds came up with their students. And this is really where Woodstock begins to blossom out. And all kinds of people come and stay, usually for the season, usually from around June through till it starts to get really cold. Um, But some of these artists began to stay year-round. And that really helped get the colony even more population, more attraction. But what's wonderful about the Art Students League is it wasn't just one style of art. worked in many, many different styles to this day. So Woodstock never had a, quote, style. It was always known for a diversity of um, uh, artist styles. That's Arthur Anderson. Part of his 1,500-item Woodstock Art Colony collection makes up the current exhibit at the New York State Museum. Born and raised in western Michigan, Uh, went to college and law school in the East and ended up uh, practicing law in uh, New York City. Um, And then I went on to other more entrepreneurial things. And as a way of getting out of the uh, stress and pressure of a big city, I bought a cabin up in the Catskill Mountains, not far from uh, Woodstock, New York. And uh, that became my refuge. And it also became um, the focus of a lot of my um, relationships, both some from the city who had been up there and permanent residents locally. And from there, got very interested in the art and culture of the historic Woodstock Art Colony. And um, ultimately uh, created a study collection of the art of the art colony, and which is now at Uh, donated to the New York State Museum in Albany. After speaking with representatives from prominent art institutions such as Yale, Cornell, and the Smithsonian, Anderson chose the New York State Museum in Albany to house his collection. All the places I've talked to, except one, were art museums. And art museums have a more formal way of uh, collecting art and exhibiting art, and it's about the art. Whereas the New York State Museum is really part of the uh, education department and the regents of New York State, and they're about education. I mean, they don't have all that much art right now, and I hope they have more, but they have, you know, they have everything else, minerals, they have shaker furniture, archaeological material, Native American material. So I thought this could be a great place because they also get 50,000 school kids. Uh, you know, going there each year with their teachers. And if we were in a place like the New York State Museum, it would be seen by more kids and more kids could be inspired or interested or get interested in the art of um, New York State. And let's face it, the New York State Museum is the largest state museum in the country, but it's also the museum of the state of New York, owned by the state of New York. So it, it had the right elements potentially. Then I said, well, I just have to take a chance and time will tell if it works out or not. And it is working out. They've been fantastic. So why did these art colonies exist in the small village of Woodstock? Well, Woodstock itself, it was one of those places, especially after the Depression, after 
um, World War II, where artists would still go, but it, it had become a kind of different place. It was still affordable. And of course, a lot of that has changed in the last 40 years or so. But because artists were there, it attracted other artists. And because there were artists who lived there year-round, it attracted other artists. And it had a wonderful all-inclusiveness in terms of even in the 20s and 30s when some artists didn't get along with others in terms of their styles. You still had this they had this ability to coexist in this village. And, um, you know, you had the Rock City Rebels, but you also had George Bellows. You also had, you know, Birdcliff people. So you have all these different kinds of artists who might philosophically differ, but still the place was one of those places <laughs> that you just wish you could live in <laughs> because you could be whoever you, you needed to be. So I think that's why musicians have always wanted to be, you know, Levon Helm and Bob Dylan and people like that, um, have been attracted to Woodstock. I think it's it's got a, um, it, it had this reputation for this inclusiveness, this bohemian sort of inclusiveness. This is eye-opening. So decades before, hundreds of thousands of people swarmed to New York's Hudson Valley for the iconic Woodstock Music Festival, the area had already developed into a haven for diversity, free thinking, and numerous art forms. Absolutely. By the time the 60s rolled around, this area, about two hours north of New York City, had been molded into a locale that was ripe for a field party celebrating peace, love, and music. Support for this program comes from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation, which helps people celebrate their community's history by providing grants for historic markers and plaques. You've probably heard of our New York State Historic Marker Grant Program, but did you know we also offer several other marker grant programs? Here in the Empire State and across the country, these programs include commemorating women's suffrage, historic canals, folklore, and sites on the National Register of Historic Places. Our grants are available to municipalities, 501c3 organizations, and nonprofit academic institutions. Since 2006, we funded over 875 signs across all our marker programs. We even funded the National Register marker at the site of the original Woodstock Festival in Bethel, New York. To apply for a marker at no cost to you, or to learn more about the Foundation's grant programs, visit WGPFoundation.org. That's WGPFoundation.org. So as we've discussed, by 1969, the artistic and social groundwork had long been established in the Hudson Valley. And like many historical events, it just needed a spark. It all started... Uh, as an idea that one guy had by the name of uh, Michael Lang. And we welcome back Wade Lawrence of the museum at Bethel Woods. He had been a head shop owner near Miami. He uh, moved to Woodstock because he knew that it was a, an artistic community and it was a, a place that he felt comfortable in. He moved to Woodstock and he, he noticed how many musicians, Bob Dylan, the band, Van Morrison, 
uh, a lot of musicians were uh, living up there. And uh, he also noticed that there was no uh, recording studio uh, at, at the time. And he decided, you know, it'd be kind of cool to bring all these musicians together and uh, do a fundraiser and we'll uh, build this recording studio in Woodstock. And all the musicians that are up there will record there and it'll be a lot of fun. As we've established, the concert's location ends up being in a farmer's field in Bethel. Working with record executive Artie Kornfeld, as well as Joel Rosenman and John Roberts, who helped finance the effort, Lang tackles a key facet of planning a concert. The biggest thing to setting up a rock festival is you've got to book some really great acts. And uh, I think the first act that they booked might have been Creedence Clearwater Revival, which immediately gave them some credibility because uh, Creedence was all over the radio. Everything that they recorded became a top 10 hit. So everybody knew Creedence. And I think a lot of the booking happened through John Morris. John Morris was uh, one of the production people at the Fillmore East. And um, the Woodstock Ventures team knew that they needed somebody who knew how to put on concerts, do the technical and the logistical things. So they brought in an awful lot of people from the Fillmore East, John Morris being the primary among them. Uh, and John had done booking, and I think it was through his contacts that a lot of the, the bands were booked. Once they got Credence, the other bands started falling into place, and uh, it wasn't until they booked Jimi Hendrix that it really became, uh, wow, this, this festival's going to happen, and everybody wanted to play Woodstock after that. It's, it's funny, the bands that were booked, uh, most of them were well-known bands of the day, uh, they were on FM radio, and, and I'm talking about uh, Friday night was the basically the folk night, and you had Tim Harden and Arlo Guthrie and Joan Paez, and those folks, uh, they were well-known. Uh, and then you had the other bands like uh, The Who, uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash had just released their first album uh, just a few months before the festival so uh, they were a hot group they were a super group you know coming from buffalo springfield and uh, the birds and the hollies uh, so the bands were popular bands at the time but then there were some bands that were not as well known uh, bands like joe cocker was on the radio but nobody really knew anything about him he hadn't toured america yet but in order to host a successful concert there's a lot more to it than simply booking bands. You need promotion, logistics. Basically, you need a plan, a vision. The promoters knew that they wanted to have a, a festival that was different from the other ones. Uh, in 69, there were uh, two dozen rock festivals, and they were all held at racetracks or big facilities that were set up for such things. And half of them ended up in riots. So... I think Lang, Kornfeld, uh, Rosenman, and Roberts wanted to do whatever they could to make a peaceful concert. They wanted it from the very beginning to be out in the country, away from urban stuff, and uh, they wanted it to be in nature and set a, a peaceful vibe that was fairly apolitical. They, they were not trying to make a political statement like we're against the war or uh, legalize marijuana or anything. 
their statement was peace and togetherness out in nature, uh, back to the land. That was the vibe they were trying to set. That's why they brought in the hog farm to set up trails and set up camping areas and things like that. I, I think that what made it so big is a, a combination of, I mean, it really was a perfect storm. They advertised it nationally, which most rock festivals did not do. They took out ads in the newspapers and all the major markets. Uh, Artie Kornfeld had great connections with radio stations around the country through his record company contacts. So he could get DJs to talk about the festival and give a lot of free promo that way. So it was well known well ahead of time. I kind of think that the fact that it had to move to Bethel gave them a push for publicity because that became a news item as well, that they lost their venue and had to move. Um, and then they had to re-advertise. So uh, it was well known. Everybody had heard about it. Uh, there were posters in record shops. Well, it was kind of a buzz in the air in the uh, during that summer. Mark Berger is the author of Something's Happening Here, a 60s odyssey from Brooklyn to Woodstock. They were running ads in the Village Voice about it, so you saw those. It's hard to believe they could get the bands they said they were getting. So there was this little New York skepticism about it, like, yeah, right. And then it made the news, because about a month before it was supposed to happen in Wallkill, they got kicked out of Wallkill. So we heard about it. Was it going to happen? It wasn't really at the forefront of my consciousness. I was living my life. And that summer, I was just kind of traveling on my own in the Northeast and so so I knew about it. I hadn't purchased tickets. Uh, I can't really say if I had plans to go or not. Uh, circumstances carried me uh, to the festival site. The book chronicles Berger's life in the 1960s, including his time at Woodstock, where he helped the aforementioned Hog Farm, a hippie commune led by Wavy Gravy that was tasked with logistics and security at the grounds. I was spending time up in the village of Woodstock. I had some friends up there, musicians, artists, uh, other people I knew. And I there was one person in particular who's Ezra in the book. And I don't exactly know what happened, but, but he said, I have these people you really like. You'll dig them. They're so cool. They're up in this commune. Uh, let's go visit them. So he drives me. He's probably still a crazy driver. Up through these windy roads, you know, and... Uh, slams on the brakes and we're at this farmhouse this little farmhouse and uh get out of the car and the guy who the couple who ran the commune clark and ava is what i call him in the book he too was an artist so he sees my friend ezra he says oh i got to show you my latest paintings they go off i basically sit under a tree and fall asleep <laughs> i wake up i don't know an hour later my friend's gone and here I am. And, and the thing about the 60s, just to say, there was this spirit of generosity. Nobody knew me. You know, I didn't know a soul. Yet I introduced myself to people. Uh, Ava invites me to dinner. You get online, you sit down. If you got a couple of bucks in your pocket, you throw it into the hat. I need a place to stay. I could go back to Ezra's, I say, well, let me ask around, and the next thing I know, I'm staying there. Now, I have an apartment in Brooklyn. 
Uh, I haven't given up my other life, but that's how I was there. And maybe, and I'm trying to think, I don't know exact days, probably a week later, it's a Sunday, and Clark announces at dinner that he's got something important to discuss. And we go to a meeting in my book. I have a story, powwow, about that meeting. It's a great story. And uh, at the at the end of that meeting, he gets up and tells us, Wavy Gravy has just called. They need our help at the festival site. And he says, basically, uh, Clark says, uh, so, you know, if you want to work all day and boogie all night, be on that bus at 7 a.m. sharp, because at 7.01, we'll be trucking on down that highway. And so I was always a worker in my life, and it just felt like there were people who need help. I've got some skills. Let's go. And that's how I ended up there. So we, 24, 25 of us, 30 of us, however many, we had a school bus too. And uh, we got there and got integrated into what was going on and the food kiosks were being built and camping areas had to be established. And so that's how it happened. Now, this wavy gravy character, who is he? And why exactly is he important to the Woodstock story? He was born Hugh Romney in East Greenbush, New York, and worked as an entertainer and comic. He was also active in the anti-Vietnam War movement and founded the Hog Farm Commune, which was asked by the promoters to help out at Woodstock. The promoters never wanted the towns to know how many people were showing up for obvious reasons. So they were always saying 25,000, maybe 40,000, 50,000. They had ticket outlets in the city that probably had sold 200,000 tickets. They had an idea, but when you rob me and those guys show up, they're like, oh, my God, and what do you have set up for them? They're not going to come with food. Mm -hmm. So you rob me had three rules when he met with uh, uh, Michael Lang and Artie Kornfeld. Rule number one, no cops inside the festival site. We take care of our own. Rule number two, write us a check. We'll go to New York City and buy equipment and food. And the most important, rule number three, don't pay us. This will only work if we do it for love. As we mentioned, the Woodstock Festival is celebrated for how peaceful it was, especially when factoring in the huge number of people, the drug use, and the difficulty in getting the performers to the actual site, since area roads essentially became parking lots. Right. And based on those factors and the rainstorms that turned the field into a mud pit, it's easy to imagine Woodstock becoming dangerous. Wade Lawrence from the Museum at Bethel Woods further details what it was like in Yasger's field. Days before the festival started, when people started arriving at the site, uh, 50,000 people were on the field the day before the festival was supposed to open. And because of the short timeline of moving from Wallkill to Bethel, uh, they didn't have everything finished. Uh, the, the fences weren't all up. They didn't have ticket booths. Uh, they were still building the stage on Friday just before the, Richie Havens took the stage. So they really were out of time. And uh, all those people sitting on the field it was obvious that if they tried to clear the field and then ticket everybody on the way in, uh, they'd have a riot on their hands. And that's definitely not what they wanted. They wanted peace. 
So it was a conscious decision. They're already on the field. We're not going to get them ticketed. We have to call it a free concert. And the word that it became a free concert spread immediately. There's, there's no cell phones. There's no social media. But everybody in the country knew that it was a free concert. And uh, by, I don't know, by Friday night or Saturday morning, the promoters were on the, on the radio telling people, don't come to Woodstock. Uh, you won't get here. Uh, the traffic's too bad. So uh, they were a victim of their success. And of course, when, when half a million people showed up, despite all the roadblocks and uh, warnings to stay away, when a half a million people showed up, they were totally overwhelmed. Uh, not enough sanitation facility. You know, they had portageons, and they had enough portageons for maybe two hundred thousand people, if they could empty them every day. And so, one, you don't have enough portageons, and two, you can't get the truck there to empty them. So immediately they had problems there, and the 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 the, the overwhelming crowds caused what could have been a real disaster. And it was the people in the audience that bought into that idea of love, bought into that idea of uh, young people can change the world if we just respect one another and work together. The young people in that crowd made it work despite the, the, the traffic and the overflowing portageons and everything else that happened, and the rain, of course. When he was in the studio for our interview, Mark Berger read a story from the Woodstock chapter of his book. It chronicles what happened on the Sunday morning of the festival as Mark checked in with a construction supervisor known as Dan the Man. Outside his office, several workers are milling around. Dan opens the door and scans the scene. He stops when he sees me. Just the man I'm looking for. Me? If I wasn't so full of crap, he says, here's what I would have said. That's that dependable cat Mark he can fill for that no-show nudnik. I can sub. What's up? I reply. Ever drive a flatbed? Yeah. When I worked construction in Brooklyn, sometimes I drove the truck that carried the pneumatic drills and compressors. What you got? Pointing, he says, we got a flatbed with a water tank on it. I need you to drive it up the hill, stopping along the way so people can get water. Up the hill? Through the crowd? You serious? Who's got time to joke? We planted those people in that field. Now we got to water them. Can't Mohammed come to the mountain? Don't work. It get way too crowded here. We got to bring the mountain to them. He ducks inside. Re-emerging, he flips me the keys and surveys the sky. Let's get it done now before the rain shuts us down. I stutter in response. But he puts up his hand, goes back in, comes out with some bread and cheese, a bottle of Coca-Cola, and a couple of cigarettes. That's all I got, okay, man? Just need to look it over, figure it out, I say. But Dan's already walking off with the work crew. How am I going to drive up that hill without killing people? Climbing inside, I see the truck has a four-speed transmission with high-range, low-range option. Better to use low range, it'll keep the action sure-footed, allowing me to roll up the hill without stalling. With my right foot on the brake pedal, I engage the emergency brake. Pushing in the clutch with my left foot, I slide through the gears. I turn the key. The engine kicks over instantly, and the gas gauge reads half full. 
Leaning out the window, I asked one of the security guys to check the brake lights and turn signals. I honked the horn, which makes a couple of people jump. What else? Oh, yeah. Climbing down from the cab, I checked the tires. The water tank is modeled on a cow's teats with six hoses attached. I loosen a couple of taps, and water comes streaming out. The truck's a-okay. Back behind the wheel, I move the seat forward, adjust my side view mirror, and slide over and adjust the one on the right side. There's a tightness in my chest. I tell myself to breathe. Shoot, this is scary. No room for mistakes, but I don't dwell on that. Fear is the fastest route to failure. The first time I drove that construction truck on the Brooklyn streets, I told myself I could do it, and I did. Same here. People need water. Here's a water truck. I'm going to drive it. There's one more thing. I lock up the truck and amble up the hill, scanning the crowd. I spot a group of teenagers, three boys and three girls, laughing at something a shirtless, muscular guy just said. One of the girls raises her middle finger to him. Ernie, say that again and I'm going to have to kick your butt. This I got to see, Ernie says, smiling. The both of us will do what goes this other girl. Walking over, I say, hey, bro. Hey, what's up, Ernie replies. I'm with the hog farm. Name's Mark. I need a solid. See that truck over there? I got to drive it up the hill to get water to our brothers and sisters. Dig it? Need some help, huh? You got it, my man, I say and slap him five. Ernie introduces me to James and Devin. I repeat their names to myself so I won't forget them. The girls tell me their names, but I make sure to seem uninterested in them. I need help, not trouble. With all these freaks everywhere, Devin asks, how are we going to do it? How the hell indeed? Here's my idea. How about you all run, to run interference for me? I'll drive as slow as possible while you go ahead shooing people out of the way. Let's surround the truck, one of the girls suggests. Some in front, some on the sides, and some in back. How far are you planning on going? I don't know, maybe three or four stops until we get to the top. Safety is number one. In this game, we can't make a single error. Everyone's plenty thirsty, Ernie says. You can't leave me, not for a second. They look at each other. What's there to think about, says James. I'm going to go get some more of our friends. When the whole gang is assembled, I say, you're good people, you know that? Not one of us is ever going to forget we did this. Not ever, Ernie says. They divide themselves into four groups, with Ernie leading the way, James and this other guy, Colin, keeping an eye on the sides, and Devin taking up the rear. It's showtime, I shout. Turning on the engine, I slide the transmission lever into low range and the gear shift into first. Moving as slowly as possible, honking as I go, we travel about half a football field, before Ernie puts up his hand for me to stop. In no time, we got lines spreading out from the truck. When they start dwindling, I honk my horn, get a thumbs up from Ernie, James, Devin, and Colin, crawl to the next stop, repeat the process, and then crawl forward until we're at the crest of the hill. The sky is getting darker. The winds are picking up. Chipmunk, the stage announcer, implores everyone to get down from the huge speaker towers that are starting to sway. With my crew's help, I make a slow U-turn and head back down, stopping three more times. 
at the next to the last stop um, to the left of the stage. Wavy Gravy is holding the microphone. He's jubilant. We have What we have in mind is breakfast for 400,000. It's not just the hog farm. It's the Ohio Mountain family, the pranksters, and all the volunteers who put in their time, who set up the free kitchens. We're feeding each other. We must be in heaven, man. Clapping and cheers ripple through the pasture. The hog farm, the Ohio Mountain family, the pranksters, that's us. That's me. How do you like them apples? My eyes missed up. I'm proud of what we've accomplished. I'm proud of myself. Wavy continues, move through the forest to the hog farm. We have 17 lines in place. Returning to the construction office, my escorts give me the peace sign and head back to their spot on the hill. I hand in the keys. Dan pats my back. Knew you could do it. Two days down, one to go. We all got to keep on trucking. An incredible story, very emblematic of the culture of togetherness and unity present at the Woodstock Festival. Now, we would be remiss if we completed an episode on Woodstock without hearing from some of the performers and key figures who made the concert a success. So to bring this full circle, we've included an oral history of Woodstock drawn from WAMC interviews with Wavy Gravy, Graham Nash, Melanie, Michael Lang, Stephen Stills, Robbie Robertson of the band, Richie Havens, Arlo Guthrie, Leslie West of Mountain, and Pete Townsend of The Who. It includes the following songs, Going Up the Country by Canned Heat, With a Little Help from My Friends by Joe Cocker, For What It's Worth by Stephen Stills, Freedom by Richie Havens, Coming Into Los Angeles by Arlo Guthrie, Blood of the Sun by Mountain, Lay Down by Melanie, and Woodstock by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. The stories get richer and riper, and uh, and the the, the uh, community is is very heartwarming. That feels like it was yesterday to me. I, I mean, I know it was a long, long time ago. I know it was 45 years, but it's still incredibly fresh in my mind. I mean, something as beautiful and real as that can never really go out of style. You see something, and it, and it, and it strikes you to in such a way that you. They're finally trying to still our voices, but you can't make it still. Young people speak in their minds Are getting so much resistance From behind Every time we stop Well, we, we had been living in uh, New York City and discovered it, it was very difficult for us to find a place that we could create, that we could write that we could work on music without bothering somebody or somebody bothering us. And our manager, Albert Grossman, had a house up in Woodstock, and he had convinced Bob Dylan to get a house up there. And then he was talking to us about coming up there. He said, you can get a place. Nobody's going to bother you. You can do whatever you need to do creatively. This is going to be terrific. And when we got up there and we found this ugly pink house in West Saugerties, just outside of Woodstock, it was like it was like heaven to us. It was like, look at this place. We can make music. We can create. And it was such a gift, this discovery. 
That idea, I think, was born out of a series of concerts that, that took place on a farm just outside of town in Woodstock. They were very low-key, kind of out in the country. The stage, I think, was maybe a foot off the ground or something like that. And the draw, you know, between two and 500 people, it was not a big deal, but uh, local talent in Woodstock in those days was people like Van Morrison and the Blues Magoos and Richie Havens, and so the shows were amazing. And it was just, you know, occurred to me that that was the perfect way to see music, was out in the country under the stars and, and uh, in nature. It was uncomplicated living in Woodstock. So, you know, people would get up and they would do their, you know, some chores and maybe, you know, go to a couple of stores in town and pick up some things that we needed. And then we would all gather at Big Pink, which was it, it turned out to be like a clubhouse. So we would go and someone would say, oh, man, grab a football while you're there. And we could get some exercise. And just the, the, the little things in life brought such joy and gave us such time to really concentrate on as much new discovery as possible because the music that we made there it didn't resemble anything we did as the Hawks. I mean, we, we started out in Woodstock. We, we then went to Saugerties and then traveled further afield and landed up in Wallkill, uh, which was a big compromise for me because it was not the ideal place and it didn't look like the ideal place or feel like the ideal place. So we set about to transform it. And when we first arrived, my partners had a meeting with the town board and explained that we were doing this kind of jazz folk thing, a few people strumming around the, around the fields. And pretty soon after we got there and they started to see all these long-haired people come up to, to work, they got the idea that this maybe was not an accurate description. So things changed kind of rapidly. But we were there for, I think, close to three months building and preparing. A guy named Elliot Tiber called my office and spoke to my assistant and said he had a site and uh, a permit and we would be welcome. <laughs> So those were like magical words for us, and we all hopped in a car and zoomed up there to White Lake to the Almanaco Motel, which was this derelict kind of uh, Catskill mountain motel with you know a pool that was looked like the Blue Lagoon, and that motel kind of reminded you of the Bates Inn. But there he was, and walked us into this swamp and said, here it is. And uh, we were pretty upset, but we were there, and riding up there, we We'd been passing all these beautiful fields. And so I asked if we could take a look around, if he had somebody who could show us around, and he did. And we took a ride and came up over a rise, and there was there it was. That was you know, the perfect place. And then we found Max, who was the perfect guy. <laughs> and we, we were very open with him from the beginning because we knew that he'd probably be going through similar stuff in this, you know, in, in this shorter period of time. We made a deal. We shook hands. Uh, the next day we signed a contract, and I, I never saw him look back. You know, we we started booking fairly early, soon after uh, the deal was made with John Robinson and Rosman to fund this thing. I started to book, and uh, I would say by sometime in April we were we were substantially booked. And when we started to see this, you know, these crowds come in by Wednesday, and then by Thursday there were 80,000 kids in the field. We knew that that this was going to grow a lot bigger than we had we had planned. We we prepared for 200,000. Um, that was the number we, we secretly picked in the beginning, and that's what we built for. And it just kept growing and growing and growing, but I think we had set parameters, you know, and, and, and sort of uh, intended.
intentions early enough so that uh, when we were building and when we were preparing and the way we, that we we promoted it, the way we talked about it, um, what happened, what the experience was when you arrived, sort of set a tone for the thing. And and, and I think that's really what made it work so well, was that it was we really prepared for that kind of thing to be able to happen, for people to be able to really feel comfortable, feel safe, be able to, you know, to sort of come together as a community. You could almost see it as a giant ball of love, and the band had tossed it out to the audience, and they'd bounce it around a little bit and throw it back at the band, and the band would be energized with it. Well, I was terrified because, God knows, there were a lot of people uh, waiting for a lot more people to come on airplanes or however they were going to get there, leaving me running around on the on the uh, fairground, as you call it. We all called it that after it was a field. <laughs> Uh, it, it was the fact that I was I was kind of put on a spot for that song. It didn't exist in those uh, Woodstock uh, days. That they, they just didn't exist. I had already gone back on the stage six times. This was the phenomenon for them. Is it called? Hey Richie, four more songs, please. I go, okay. Thanks for do it. Let me do it. And, and I was really nervous. I was the most, it was the most nervous time. It wasn't forceful or anything like that. It was the fact that there wasn't anybody else coming to play. <laughs> so we we get down to the, the last time I walked out on stage, which was uh, when I got off the stage and I went, he asked me for the seventh time, I did Richie one more time, you know, the planes are off the ground and they're coming, you know, so I said, okay. I went walking back to the stool that I was sitting on, and I was on my way there, and I was thinking, what other song could I sing? In two and a half hours, I I had already sung more than I thought I had, <laughs> and, and, and and had added two more. Uh, and, and so I was uh, uh, trying to figure out. I went back to the stage still playing the, the end of the previous song. I thought I was winding it down and walking back to that stage. Sat down on the stool there. Just it sort of waited a long time. If you if you listen to the record, it's the longest intro any song that I ever heard. <laughs> and it was because I was trying to, to find out how to sing it. I didn't know what I was going to sing when I sat down for the seventh time. And then finally I said, oh, I don't know what, I'll call it what the end of the last song was making me think. Okay, uh, freedom, freedom. And then the guy gives me a signal and I start, freedom, 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 freedom. After a long intro, of course, like I said. And something had to come out of my mouth. Something had to come out of my mouth. And all of a sudden, I, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Pop through. I hadn't sung that song for 14 years. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Home, yeah, 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 yeah. Singing freedom, freedom, 
I learned that song as a folk spiritual song and very young back in when I learned it I thought I have to learn this after I sung it and, and you know and added it in and, and freedom and it became something to the audience that I felt and they they became witnesses of this song I felt it had a spiritual connection with everybody at the same time I think that we opened out one channel that that led to every every place I've been so it, it, to me it's um, my favorite happy song and my happy fulfilling song my happy you know everything happy you know the sun's gonna come don't worry about it we brought the hog farm in early to help set up campgrounds and kids who had never been to the country, let alone camped in the country, and by the thousands, and, and need help sort of figuring out how to do this. And so they would greet people coming in, help them set up campsites, and then get those people to help the next group come in. And, and we started to, to generate this, this sense of this big community, this big family. Uh, that we were creating, and that, that, that really worked beautifully. It was a time in the 60s that when we refer to it now, it's sex, drugs, rock and roll, we talk about the clothes, we talk about the music, what guitar was he playing, stuff like that. But there was one other unique feature of the 60s, and that is that people were trying to help each other out in ways that they hadn't before. We started a lot of free clinics, for example. There were places you could go if you were on the street, stuff like that that we were interested in doing. And so here's this moment of Woodstock. Starts like a normal festival, a few promoters trying to make a whole lot of money, getting together the biggest rock and roll festival ever in the history of the world. And at some point, they realize it's a catastrophe. And I remember Michael Lang coming over to me and saying, Arlo, we're opening up the gates. We're going to make it free for the you know, safety of everybody. And we may not be able to pay you. It's a free concert from now on. So you have to decide whether you're playing or not. I said, of course I'm playing. I'm here, you know. New York State Thruway is closed, man. <laughs> and so, of course, I agreed. All the stuff that we talk about from Woodstock stems from this decision by people who were in a position to make a lot of money, to forego the money for the health and safety and welfare of all these young people. It would be like today. An insurance company decides for the health and welfare of our clients, we're not going to make a profit for a year. It would be that historic. That's why we remember Woodstock. Everything we talk about, it flows from this decision by these guys to forego the money. And of course, they all made it back. And of course, I made what I was supposed to be, and, and I made more from the royalties of the records and the movies and all that other stuff. But that's how historic it was. It was the last great, let's just make it free moment of the 60s. It moved me so much. It changed my life to see that happen. just kept growing and growing and growing through the entire week so it wasn't like there was one moment when everybody arrived they were just you know it was just a continuation uh, of, of this massive 
rush of humanity. Just this this, this energy wave that that we were carried on, and and you say you can't get used to it, but you kind of do. You kind of get into that mode of like this is your life now. This is, you know, you're, it, it, because it's around the clock and it's twenty four seven. You're there for almost four days with these people. You start to get to know them. I mean, I remember the faces in that crowd. And and you 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 somehow you know your reality you, you adapt to that reality and, and that becomes what you're living. Financially, this is a disaster. But you but you look so happy. I'm very look happy. what you got there, man. You couldn't buy that for anything. Sure. This is really beautiful, right? These people are communicating with each other. That, that rarely happens anywhere anymore. It was three days of music constantly. It didn't it didn't shut down at midnight. I think that might have been our fourth show. We had the same agent as Jimi Hendrix, so uh, he used Jimmy's clout to get us on that show. But it was disappointing we weren't in the movie, but they found our film finally. They had lost it. And uh, Warner Brothers just re-released the uh, 40th anniversary box set that's really beautiful with our footage in it. And Hendrix producer Eddie Kramer had remixed the sound, and uh, I'm glad that it's out now. We had to get to that show, so we flew back to New York City and we rented our own helicopter to get there because the throughway was closed, the highways were closed, the people were walking all over the place. And when we flew over the site and I looked down and saw 400 and some odd thousand people, I was like shocked. What was happening then, I remember, was a lot of people smoking weed. The state troopers were really great. They they didn't mind. I mean, what could they do? There was, I don't know weren't that many of them around and it became a free festival but since then i mean i guess a lot of people thought oh this is going to change the world i think what it did was it opened up music more you know there was more festivals going on and people really 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 got got into music i think we define periods in our life by what music we were listening to at the time it seemed like it went by so fast and we were so nervous you know it was like playing in front of that many people and we got to go on on a really nice time because Friday night it was raining and muddy and then Saturday it was beautiful and sunny and we got to go on right before it started to get dark. And it was exciting, that's all I can tell you. That, that part I do remember. It was a completely magical event for me. When it was first, uh, like in the 80s, it would be covered with uh, with a, a cynicism, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Woodstock, like a bunch of burned out hippies, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And the character from Taxi, you know, it was, it was kind of uh, made fun of and just uh, discounted as anything that existed that would be changing the face of human existence. Um, of course, when it was happening, that's exactly what it felt like. It felt like a, a near renaissance on Earth. Um, it felt like, you know, the world is going to change now, and all this insanity and inhumanity is going to go away.
eventually I will see Woodstock. Eventually. I mean, I have seen our participation, and I've seen, obviously, Joe Cocker, I've seen Sebastian, I've seen Richie Havens, but I've never sat down and experienced the entire movie for what it was. Said I'm going down to last us I had my my young wife with me with our with our firstborn child. She was only about six months old. I tried to get out of playing at Woodstock because I had Emma. I was I'd just been born, but was bullied into doing Woodstock, and of course, probably a good thing. I'm looking forward to doing uh, Woodstock is 50. I, I imagine we'll all be in uh, rocking chairs, and uh, I'll make the announcement: if you have taken the brown and acid, <laughs> watch out. We are stars. So by definition, as historians, we look back at events and analyze them within the context of both the times they took place and their legacy. Right. So historically, what is the legacy of Woodstock? There was so much turmoil in the 1960s, the civil rights struggle, the unpopular war in Vietnam, the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Robert Kennedy. So why are we talking about this rock concert 50 years after it happened? Maybe it's because in the midst of all these violent and tumultuous events, you have the juxtaposition of this utopian gathering, which happened over four days in a farmer's field. And despite all the adversity they faced, it reflected what could happen if the ideas of peace and love actually did triumph. The media quit talking about hippies mired in a sea of mud and governor declares disaster area. Uh, and the headlines were starting to talk about how it was actually working and this was something to be taken note of. I think the local people recognized that the kids themselves were polite and helpful and uh, not bad people. Uh, the policemen realized that these were not enemies. These these were their kids. And I think that the people in the audience sensed that not only is this the biggest thing they'd ever seen, they'd never seen this many people, but they sensed that feeling of community. Uh, they, they, they knew it was happening as it was happening. Uh, you hear story after story of the people saying that there was that sense of peace and togetherness and cooperation. You know, there was such a spirit of cooperation, their camaraderie, it was really tangible. And you know the the counterculture you know has has uh, has been attacked, has been ridiculed, has been mocked, and I think one of the reason why is we had answers then that are as valid then as they are today. So if you look at what comes out of the '60s, what comes out of the counterculture, 
the civil rights movement was the was initiated it. They they Martin Luther King, Ralph Abernathy, John Lewis, mm -hmm. they started it. You know, Malvina Reynolds, we could go on and Fannie Lou Hammer. They they were the ones that said this is how you approach the larger culture and make them pay attention to what you we took it up. Of course, we all know the anti-war movement, which was also a peace movement. Uh, people see it as self-serving, but I know that me and thousands and thousands of people in that generation were out every single weekend. We didn't want anybody to go. We didn't want anyone to go. It wasn't, I mean, of course, we didn't want to kill for nothing. We didn't want to die for nothing but we didn't want anybody. So I just feel like saying that. But if you look at what came out of it, out of the civil rights movement, out of that time, what did you have? You had the women's rights movement, the feminist movement gets started, gay power, Stonewall happens, the disabilities movement gets its start there. The idea of the counterculture was you make the circle wider. You're inclusive and accepting. That was the concept. You expand freedom to other people. You level the playing field so that everybody has a shot, so that America becomes a meritocracy. The environmental movement got started there. Just think about those things happening. There was a great power movement at some point. There was the Indian rights, not Native American, whatever we want to call it, that got its birth then. All these movements that had to do with, we do not want to be marginalized anymore. We are citizens of this country. We should be included in how things happen on an equal basis. So there was a tremendous amount of acceptance, inclusion, tolerance, mutual respect, and it shows across the board. If you look at the music, the music was infused by a sitar playing from the East, by soul music, by Motown, but everything was, it all will work if we all do it together. So the art movement, I mean, we could go on and on. So I think that the generation before mine was the greatest generation. I will not argue with that. My parents came through the depression somehow got back on their feet and fought the Second World War, and we won it. They, they established the basis of this counterculture, which was middle class and white mostly, and they provided the material security most of us grew up expecting other people should have. But we were the imagination generation. We had the freedom to think and come up with ideas and look at things honestly about who the American dream was working for and who was left out of that vision. It reflected the era and influenced the era. And it was a, a mass cultural expression of the counterculture that there is value to going back to the earth, that there is value in respecting your neighbor and working together. Peace and love really is the legacy. Thanks for joining us on A New York Minute in History, a podcast about the history of New York and the unique tales of New Yorkers. I'm Devin Lander. And I'm Lauren Roberts. 
Stay tuned to WAMCpodcast.org and the New York State Museum website for more episodes. A New York Minute in History is a production of the New York State Museum, WAMC Northeast Public Radio, and Archivist Media. Our producer is Jim Lavoulis of WAMC. Support for the project comes from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. The program is also funded in part by Humanities New York with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thanks to Arthur Anderson, Karen Quinn of the New York State Museum, Wade Lawrence of the Museum at Bethel Woods, and Mark Berger, author of Something's Happening Here, a 60s Odyssey from Brooklyn to Woodstock, for all their help. Also, a big thank you to New York State Museum intern Sarah Casaza for her production and interview work. And WAMC's Alan Shartok, Ian Pickus, Joe Donahue, Sarah LaDuke, and newsroom intern Jackie Orchard for their contributions to the outstanding oral history of Woodstock segment. Until next time. Excelsior. Excelsior.